This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing an article on buprenorphine tapering. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm doing really well. How are you doing, John? Oh, living the dream. What's new in addiction medicine this week for you? Well, it's probably old news by the time this airs, but I was really excited to see that the Biden administration released a new initiative to improve the care of pregnant women with opioid use disorder. There was a report detailing the Biden administration's plan, and it stressed that having a substance use disorder in pregnancy, and I'll quote, is not by itself child abuse or neglect, and that criminalizing substance use disorder in pregnancy is ineffective and harmful. I'm just glad they're mentioning that, especially that criminalizing substance use in pregnancy does not lead to improved outcomes. I feel that we need to be as welcoming as possible to pregnant women. And I found myself that pregnancy is a great time to get people into treatment. Most of my pregnant patients have done really well. In our system, we offer them a lot of extra support and we're able to get them through a safe pregnancy with a healthy baby. It's one of the more rewarding types of addiction care that I'm involved in. John, what's your experience working with pregnant women who have opioid use disorder? You know, I I actually really, they're my favorite group to work with. I think that uh, a lot of times when people become pregnant, it's a great motivation to change. It's like the best New Year's resolution ever when you have a kid. And I think people really kind of want to do better for like their future baby and they're very optimistic about the future. So I think that's just like an awesome part of my practice, at least. And I have a couple in my panel at this moment. I also love seeing the babies get born and then grow up. I have a bunch of long-term patients and I've seen them through their pregnancies. And now the kids are toddlers or even summer elementary schoolers now and just doing awesome. So that's that's a fun part. But you're right. People are so motivated in pregnancy. And I, I sometimes tell women like, look, you couldn't do this for yourself, but you are doing it for your baby. And that's awesome. And they're happy and they feel very welcomed and supported, which is the opposite if you're in a setting where you have to kind of punish or catch people using substances. If they feel like you're going to try to punish them or take the baby or something, they're very reluctant to seek care. Yeah, I think, too, you know, with the midterms kind of around the corner, I, I, I've been watching a lot of like the local politics at the different state levels. And it's interesting, this topic of, uh, you know, substance use disorder being an opportunity for treatment in lieu of um a reason to put someone in jail. It really seems to be coming forefront. And I was kind of happy to see it's it's not just Democrats, it's Democrats and Republicans looking at it two different regards in many ways. One about treatment, uh, but the other one is just the cost effectiveness of, of jailing all these people. So it's one of the few times it sounds like that everyone's starting to kind of come together and agree a little bit that it's not the right thing to do. And it's also probably not the most financially sound thing to do. So great win-win situation. Totally. So, John, what has struck you in addiction medicine this week? You know, this is like not really kind of uh, research oriented, but I I really enjoyed watching the Matthew Perry or Walters interview uh, recently. I don't know if anyone has some time to watch that uh, 45 minute interview, but it was really fun just hearing Matthew tell a story about kind of his struggles with addiction while he was an active cast member on Friends and, and really kind of how dark it was for him. And on the surface, he was such a functional person, uh, like one of the great, like the highest paid TV actors at the time. So, you know, that's not necessarily something that um, the stories aren't that surprising to those of us that practice addiction medicine. But it definitely was worth just kind of hearing his story. And and his book is out there trying to help other people kind of at least relate to what he went through. 
That's really cool. I haven't watched it, but I definitely should. Yeah, Friday night with with some pizza. Well, let's uh, talk about this article, shall we? Yeah. So I'm super excited about this article. I really have been waiting for something like this, and I'm really grateful to the authors for putting in the time. So this is an article that was published in JAMA Network Open a few months ago, and the title is Prescribing Characteristics Associated with Opioid Overdose Following a Buprenorphine Taper. And the reason I'm so excited about this is we've seen a lot of data on the benefits of being on buprenorphine, methadone, different treatments for opiate use disorder, but I've seen very little research on the process of coming off the medication. We see data on how poorly people do if they leave treatment, but nothing about people who taper down their buprenorphine in a controlled way deliberately because they want to be off the medication, but in a way that's stable. So I just was really excited to see this research. So a little more background. As you know, and I'm sure our audience knows, we're in the middle of an opioid overdose crisis. There are over 100,000 deaths annually from drug overdose in the U.S., most of them opioid-related. And we know that being on medication for opioid use disorder, either buprenorphine or methadone, can decrease the risk of death from overdose by up to 70%, 50 to 70% in the more recent studies. In this time of fentanyl, that benefit is even more pronounced. Most guidelines at this point recommend continuing the medication for opiate use disorder indefinitely, given the increased risk of overdose and death when not in treatment. But many patients do not prefer this. The medication is stigmatized, it's expensive, and it has adverse effects. We do know that shorter-term therapy, like less than 30 days, you know, kind of a detox or after being in rehab, is followed by 90% risk of return to opioid use. But there's very limited evidence to guide the process for those patients who have been on therapy for the long term and want to taper off slowly, but still remain safe from overdose. So before we start talking about this paper, I'd love to hear what's your experience with buprenorphine tapering. Do you taper patients off buprenorphine? Do you set a time limit? What's your tapering process, if any? Yeah, I think it's changed over the years. I think initially, I, you know, I put a time frame on when we would consider a taper and then I've kind of like somewhat realigned how I was thinking about the whole process. So really, I kind of let the patients discuss a taper with me when they feel ready. Certainly after a year or two, depending upon the patient, I will discuss just their thoughts on the idea of tapering, not necessarily that we're going to come up with a plan for it, but just what what they feel about being on the medication where they want to be. Other than that, and, and actively discouraging patients kind of like early on to, to taper off, that seems to be the more common discussion. It doesn't come up too, too often. And I only have a couple people that have successfully tapered off, I think, in, in my career at this point. Yeah, I feel the same. I've had a few patients who tapered off and they then relapsed later. You know, they stayed off drugs for a few years and relapsed and came back. I have patients who've tapered off and stayed completely off. But the majority of my patients either stay on the medication or just disappear and I don't know if they have relapsed, if they've some end up incarcerated, they move, some pass away, unfortunately. But the long, slow, controlled taper, it's true. That's a very small fraction of the patients that I tend to work with. Yeah, definitely. I definitely don't recommend tapering unless someone's really, really stable, though, or if they're having some huge problem with the medication and really just want to get off it. Yeah, I think I've seen before, even at a year approximately 50% risk of relapse is one study I saw. So I feel like if it's not better than a coin flip, I, I tend to kind of wait until at least after that period of time until I kind of engage that I think it's a good idea from like a medical standpoint too. Yeah, 
The thing I see, though, and I feel kind of bad about this, is being on the medication is not ideal for a lot of my patients. Even if they don't have side effects or they feel fine on it, they don't love the feeling of being kind of beholden to a medication. They don't love having to come to the doctor. And I worry about them and I worry what would happen if something happens to me or them. Like right now, I have a patient who wants to move out of state because her, you know, her partner is moving and they have a new job and they want to move somewhere else. And just trying to set up treatment in another state has been the biggest nightmare. It's just caused her a huge amount of stress because you can't just apparently sign up with a new doctor and get right into treatment somewhere else. Yeah, I've come across that too. So let me start with a clinical question in this paper. So just to summarize, you know, I'll put it out there to summarize among people receiving buprenorphine maintenance therapy and undergoing a taper what prescribing characteristics are associated with opioid overdose? So this was a population-based retrospective cohort study. This is another one that used administrative health data from Ontario's single-payer state health system. And so it's not a randomized controlled trial. It's a retrospective cohort study. So who was in it? It included adults who had a new treatment episode that lasted at least 60 days. So you had to be on the medication at least 60 days and who subsequently discontinued with a taper. And they define taper as a decreasing dose with the final month being two milligrams or less daily, or the last prescription being less than the dose four weeks prior. So you had to really reduce your dose down to either two or have sort of a monthly step down. And then they define discontinuation as any 14-day gap in prescriptions. It was done in Ontario between 2013 and 2019, and the patients were followed till 2020. The median age was 34, 60% were male, 84% were urban, and 57% were of low socioeconomic status. About 13% had had a hospitalization for opioid overdose prior. 25% had been on buprenorphine within the last six months as a separate treatment episode, and 24% had been on methadone. So these are people, many of whom have been in treatment before, many of whom had experienced a serious overdose, and they're now on buprenorphine. So what they looked at was the time to the initiation of the taper. Was it greater than or less than a year? They looked at the rate of taper, like how long you tapered, the number of days when the dose was decreasing, and the duration. The outcomes were the primary endpoint was time to fatal or non-fatal opioid overdose. So either in the ED or hospital visit coded for opioid overdose within 18 months following initiation of the taper. The secondary endpoint was rotation of methadone within 14 days of stopping the buprenorphine or buprenorphine treatment reentry or getting a prescription for opioids. Of note, an endpoint that I would have really wanted to see was the return to illicit opioid use because that's what I see happening to my patients but that was not included because that's not something that can be captured in this administrative database. So again, just to summarize the clinical question, among people receiving buprenorphine maintenance and then undergoing a taper, were the prescribing characteristics of the taper in terms of taper duration, time to taper, rate of taper, and number of days when the dose was decreasing, so frequency of dose step-downs, what characteristics of those was associated with opioid overdose? So, John, what do you think of the clinical question? I really like the things they looked at because that's certainly kind of like when to initiate the taper, the velocity of the taper over what period of time. Those are all kind of great. 
you know, certainly time to overdose, that's a relevant patient-centered outcome, although that's probably our most severe patient-centered outcome. I'm not sure if that's a marker of success for our patients, at least for the most part, right? There's probably other things that are also important to them in addition to that that I would like to see in this. But I think that uh, they're asking at least the right direction of questions here. So let's talk about validity. Again, this was a population-based retrospective cohort study using administrative health data from Ontario. They have a single-payer health system. So their administrative health insurance data captures the population as a whole, which is great. But there's still a lot of questions about the veracity of coding data in these big database studies. We've talked about this before, but the data is only as good as the people who enter it. And you know that we as doctors are not necessarily that accurate. You just put down whatever code's going to get you through and on to the next patient often. The data is even less accurate than normal when it comes to drug poisonings and drug overdoses, which are not even themselves very well defined. You could define a drug poisoning or a drug overdose as anyone in the ED with an adverse reaction to opioids, including extreme constipation, nausea and vomiting, urinary retention, respiratory depression, dizziness, any severe side effect that brings you into the ER is an opioid poisoning and might be coded as an overdose. It's not just people who are brought back from the brink of death. And then there's also a problem with people coming into the ER with drug-related poisoning, and it's not coded as opioid-related. So there was a new paper that came out recently looking at the sensitivity of health records for non-fatal drug overdoses. It was done with a group of veterans, and they were asked, these patients were asked if they had ever experienced a drug overdose, and their answers were compared to whether or not there was any health record codes of an overdose. Because many people experience their overdoses at home, they may be revived with Narcan by a family member or friend, and they never seek medical attention. So the sensitivity, using patient report of an overdose as the gold standard, the sensitivity was 12% for having an overdose coded for in the electronic health system, health record. So that's kind of pathetic. So it really calls into question the whole category of research based on insurance databases. And like you said, the hospital-related overdose is the most severe of all the bad things our patients might experience. There's a ton of adverse outcomes, including an at-home overdose that was never captured that's not in this database. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that paper, but it really gave me pause thinking about all this big database research on addictions and overdoses. Yeah, I think that, you know, at least this database research really seems to come up because it's such a population level issue. And certainly when you have access to it, it's a large end. So it's it's useful for kind of trends and things you can capture. But you're right. I think if you're insinuating that, you know, physicians aren't the best coders and, and documenters at time, I would say that we probably agree with that. Yeah, totally. So let's continue to talk a little more about validity. I mean, this whole coding thing is a problem. In this paper, though, at least we're comparing two groups of patients who had the same coding. So I'll hope that if there's an issue with the sensitivity, the same issue exists in both groups and maybe we can still draw some comparisons. The sample size was large, which is really good. They managed to find 5,774 individuals who had experienced a buprenorphine taper and they had all of them together, 6,451 episodes of tapering because several people went through, some people went through the process more than once. They did adjust for confounders, including age, sex, income, rurality, comorbidity, burden, and then use of a whole bunch of other stuff, sedative hypnotics, alcohol, stimulants, and then hospitalizations for depression or anxiety, history of opioid overdose, history of 
having a pain prescriber who you saw a pain physician, history of methadone, buprenorphine, and a bunch of stuff about their doses, maximum dose, missed doses. And also they controlled pre and post fentanyl, which came on the scene in Ontario in 2016. So they tried to adjust for all these confounders. The two groups were mostly similar at baseline. The shorter time to taper groups so are the people who tapered at less than a year of treatment. They were a little younger, had a few more ED visits for opioid overdose, a little more anxiety and depression, but the difference wasn't too huge. I thought the follow-up was good, 18 months. That's enough time to gauge the effects of the taper. The outcomes, which were overdoses or going back on medication for opioid use disorder or going on to prescription opioids, I think were clinically relevant. As I said before, they missed the outcome that was returned to drug use because that's the adverse outcome I've seen with my patients after going off buprenorphine. They return to illicit use. Most of them don't overdose, of course, but they're at risk, but mostly they're just, they're just relapsing. They did a bunch of sensitivity analyses, trying to look at people who successfully completed a full taper, meaning the final dose was less than two milligrams a day. And it was funded by the Ontario Ministry of Health and the Ministry for Long-Term Care, So I don't think funding was likely to cause bias in this case. So in conclusion, I thought this trial was valid or as valid as any large insurance database trial can be, but it's missing one of the most important outcomes, which is whether patients return to illicit drug use after a taper. So did you think this trial was valid? Yeah, I think that the the, the concerns you have are the same ones that I saw. But, you know, the biggest thing is that at least it starts to kind of answer the question. And I think this is like the first step before you do like an RCT is you get some population level data and we can at least have a starting point for what we think are kind of metrics to look at moving forward. I wonder if, given the lethal nature of opioid overdose and the prevalence of opioid overdose, if it would be considered ethical to do a randomized controlled trial of buprenorphine tapering. You don't think so? Well, I wonder if it would be considered too dangerous to randomize anybody to the tapering group. Well, I think if they were like willingly to taper, right, you could look at the different kind of factors they looked at, like velocity, how many days in taper, like those things could be randomized, I think, ethically. You're right, forcing someone into a taper, probably not so much. Right. I guess if all participants wanted to taper and then you could randomize how that taper was done, that could be ethical. Well, let's talk about the results. Well, and yeah, for our listeners, if you want to do that randomized controlled trial, let us know. We'll review it on the podcast. So, In general, what happened to people after tapering? So remember, there were 5,774 people in this study who all tapered. Of them, 66% experienced one of the following adverse outcomes within 18 months of their taper. So 349 overdosed, 3,360 restarted medication for opiate use disorder, 463 started prescription opioids, and 292 rotated to methadone. So basically, two-thirds of the people either overdosed or were back on an opioid within 18 months of tapering. A third of the patients, we don't know. My guess is a certain number of them remained off opiates altogether. A certain number of them returned to illicit drug use or disappeared from this database in other ways. So not great for the buprenorphine taper. So now let's look at what characteristics were associated with overdose within 18 months of taper. So just to summarize, the shorter time to taper was associated with more overdoses. The faster taper was associated with more overdoses. The more frequent dose step downs were associated with more overdoses. And finally, the duration of the taper itself, like how long you spent tapering, that did not have any association with overdoses. 
So tapers that were shorter, faster, with more frequent step downs were all associated with more overdoses. So that didn't really surprise me, but it was good to see it in the numbers. So just to be specific here, let me dig in a little bit to these numbers. So in terms of time to taper, they looked at whether they looked at people who tapered at less than a year or more than a year on buprenorphine. So if you are on buprenorphine less than a year prior to your taper, there were about 10 overdoses per 100 person years. If you were on it greater than a year, there were about seven overdoses per 100 person years when you tapered. In terms of tapering rate, they looked at whether you tapered two milligrams at a time, two to four milligrams at a time, or greater than four milligrams at a time. The slowest taper group had about seven overdoses per 100 person years. The middle group had 11 overdoses per 100 person years. And the quick group, four milligrams at a time, had about 17 overdoses per 100 person years. So this was a really big difference. And again, it's not a randomized controlled trial. There might have been some reason people were tapered rapidly. Maybe the person was not doing well, non-compliant with treatment and in the process of being dismissed from the practice. Maybe they were sort of self-tapering. They didn't want to come back to clinic anymore. So they just got a sort of quick taper with a few steps and were told, good luck. You know, so we don't know why they tapered so quickly, but those people who tapered quickly did not do well. There was also a slight increase in overdoses if the step downs were more frequent. I thought about that, that maybe those step downs are a vulnerable time. So every time you reduce the dose, is that a time of vulnerability? The more frequently you do a step down, the more times you have where the patient is vulnerable. And then finally, taper duration, less than six months compared to greater than 12 months. They didn't show any consistent association between longer or shorter tapers. So, John, do these results kind of ring true to you? Are they consistent with what you see in clinical practice? They all kind of like reaffirmed a lot of the stuff I already do and the patients I do taper. The only thing I was surprised was that the duration wasn't kind of that powerful. That, That was kind of the biggest surprise to me in this. I'm not sure what you thought about that. Well, I was surprised, too, because I thought that a longer taper would somehow be safer. But when I think about my patients the length of the taper does end up being kind of idiosyncratic. Some people really just taper quickly and don't seem to have any problem. Other people draw it out for months or even years of slow, slow dose reduction. So maybe that taper duration is really not something that's consistent from patient to patient. Hmm. Good point. The next thing we looked at was treatment re-entry. That was the next outcome. So longer and slower tapers led to lower rates of treatment reentry. Time to start the taper was not associated with rate of treatment reentry. So again, if you tapered longer and slower, you had less reentry into treatment. And that kind of makes sense to me because a lot of my people, they'll might start to taper, like they'll go from 16 to 12 to eight, and then they'll stop at eight or stop at four or two or even one. I have some patients on one milligram of buprenorphine I even have someone on one milligram of buprenorphine only twice a week, super duper low, but not going off at all together. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had someone taking it several times per week, like a dialysis schedule. I know, right? (laughs) But it's, it's true. I have patients who are nervous about making that final jump all the way off. And so I sort of will offer it every other day. And then three days a week and then two days a week. And it, and then after that, I say, well, it's just sort of PRN. You can keep a few films at home. And if you need them, you can take them, but I don't think you will. Hmm. And then finally, characteristics associated with treatment re-entry within 18 months of taper. So just to summarize, 
being in treatment less than or greater than one year did not affect overall rate of reentry. There was no association with number of days where the dose was decreasing and treatment reentry. Slower rate of taper was associated with lower rate of treatment reentry. And finally, a longer taper led to lower rates of treatment reentry. And when we're talking about what is the rate of treatment reentry, between 80, you know, 84 people per 100 person years going into treatment reentry. 90 per 100 person years going into treatment reentry. So very high rates of getting back into treatment for these patients. The final set of results that the authors looked at was the results over time. And they were consistent with the discrete data. So if any of our listeners are wondering why they didn't see that when they read the paper, you have to go into the supplemental appendix to get those Kaplan-Meier curves. But basically all of those Kaplan-Meier curves split early and they continued to separate over time. So basically the results over time were the same as the discrete results. So basically, I'm going to summarize one more time. Patients who were on buprenorphine for greater than a year, who had longer tapers, who had slower step downs, did better. Again, not a randomized controlled trial, but a retrospective cohort study. And there could have been something in the groups that got longer and slower tapers that predisposed them to better outcomes. Maybe patients who were using opiates illicitly or having some other trouble were tapered more rapidly or took themselves off the buprenorphine more rapidly. Or patients who were finding the treatment less successful, they just wanted to get off it and be done with it. The final results I like to look at, and I always ask myself this when I read a paper, is what information can you get from the trial other than the primary results? So I noticed that 13.2% had a hospitalization for non-fatal overdose prior to the study. So that gives us a good sense of what is the overdose rate for people using illicit opioids in this current era. And then the median time taper initiation was 122 days. So people were on the buprenorphine less than six months on average before patients started to taper. And I don't know if this is a function of the data being a little old or the culture in Ontario or something about the patients, but they did taper relatively rapidly. So any other thoughts about the results, John? Not particularly. I think that kind of summarize up, I think, the big takeaway points that they kind of hammered home like what, what makes a successful taper and, and who is that group? All right. So will the results help me in patient care? So my patients are somewhat similar to those in this study, although very few of my patients taper, so I can't quite compare. The treatment is feasible in my setting. I do do tapering and we can do long drawn out tapers if the patients want. The majority of patients in this study did not taper quote unquote successfully and the adverse outcome of return to drug use was not measured. And then I asked myself, what defines success anyway? If someone tapers and is off for a while and then returns to treatment, is that successful or unsuccessful? You might say as long as they're alive, it's successful. As long as they're not using illicit opiates, it's successful. There's also a question of time. If you use buprenorphine and you stay off illicit drugs for five years and then you relapse, are you a success case or a failure case? You know, so the definition of success is a little iffy here, or not iffy, but it's variable. Everyone can define success differently. So in conclusion, just to summarize, being on buprenorphine for greater than a year, making fewer dose decreases, stepping down two milligrams at a time or less, those were associated with fewer overdoses and less return to medication for opiate use disorder treatment. So I personally will continue to offer a very slow taper to people who are interested Given the high risks of taper, you know, because this study really pointed out how unsuccessful tapering is, given the risks of tapering, I actually am going to start adding some harm reduction counseling to my tapering plans and be sure that patients have a good recovery support plan in place if they start. So I'll start saying, hey, I don't want to jinx it. I don't, I hope you don't relapse, but it's risky. And so do you have Narcan? 
Do you know that you should use a lot less than you did before? Can you make sure you never use a loan? Can you make sure someone's always with you if you're going to use? Just put some of that counseling out there for people so that if they do relapse in the course of tapering, at least hopefully they can survive that. That's an interesting idea, kind of like a relapse action plan like we do with asthma, way to mitigate their 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 possibility for an adverse outcome if they were to have an, an episode of distress. Yeah, I'll look for a reference. I actually am going to put it in the show notes for a different episode, but I found a great reference for harm reduction suggestions for all different kinds of drug use, ways to use just a little more safely. So ways to drink alcohol more safely, use opioids more safely, how to use methamphetamine or club drugs more safely. And these are tips we can give our patients. I think we don't want to because we don't want to be telling them that we think they're going to use again, but the reality is they probably will. And hopefully we can help them survive it. That's great. Thanks for presenting that article. It was really fun to read. Before we finish, I do want to read some comments from our listeners. People had a lot of thoughts about episode eight, which was about the risks of suicide and overdose with discontinuation of prescription opioids. So the first comment I want to share was from a Dr. Nick Borman. He's an addiction psychiatry fellow at Indiana University in Ohio. And if you remember, one concern that we had about the outcomes of the paper was that it only looked at opioid overdoses, not at other complications of opioids. Nick had the same thought. He says, and I'll quote him, I think instead of looking at opioid overdoses, they could look to see who went on to be coded as moderate to severe opioid use disorder or not. The new question being, does tapering an opioid versus abrupt discontinuation offer a protection against the development or worsening of opiate use disorder? I don't prescribe opioids other than buprenorphine and methadone. However, when I talk to physicians who have consulted me on what to do, their concern is often about trying to prevent the person from developing a worsening addiction and not, will that person become suicidal due to the taper? We also got a lot of comments on Twitter. If you want to see them all, you'll have to uh, follow us on Twitter, but my favorite was from at Ajay Manhapra, so A-J-A-Y-M-A-N-H-A-P-R-A. And he wrote to us, your conclusions seem to be, and remember this is conclusions about episode eight where we talked about opioid tapering. Your conclusions seem to be largely distress management of holding on to your beliefs that opioid taper is largely beneficial against the relentless accumulation of data. Taper does not appear to achieve any of its goals in real practice. And he also tweeted, The million-dollar question, how do we enable PCPs who bear the brunt of this complex issue to move forward providing safe and effective treatment? No one on Twitter really jumped to answer that question. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. I certainly don't know the answer to that question. No, it's really hard. I mean, I don't know. Do you see that Journal of General Internal Medicine talking about primary care? And they basically said to do what we're currently doing to follow guideline-based therapy, provide acute care for an average panel size, and do everything we're currently doing and supposed to be doing, we would have to have a 26.7-hour workday each day to provide that. And so I think this is another example of this is a really tough situation. And it's kind of been placed into primary care's uh, lap after pain management kind of got out of it in many communities. And now it's our, our issue. I think if, if people really want to help primary care physicians, I think other specialties getting involved would really be probably the, the biggest thing that we could do, I think, in some regards to make this more kind of multimodal. Yeah, I agree. People complain about what a bad job in primary care we did prescribing opioids and now what a bad job we're doing tapering the opioids. 
And the same goes for benzodiazepines, and I'm sure stimulants are going to be right there also, because that's another big category of addictive medications we've been tasked with managing and prescribing. But the rest of the medical community kind of is run with their hands over their ears saying, la, 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 I don't hear you, running in the opposite direction from this issue. So yeah, if anybody wants to jump in, be our guests. We're uh, happy to take the help. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I'm not kind of speaking illy on any specialty, but I feel like, you know, pain management was very much involved with this. And how many pain management doctors are just like, quote, interventional pain management now? They do no medication management at all. So it seems like they've kind of selectively were involved with starting this. And at this point, they've kind of tapped out and said, talk to your PCP about pain medication moving forward. So I don't know, like as always, kind of primary care, we're kind of left holding the uh, the stick at the end of the day or, you know, the round robin. We have no chairs left when the music stops. So they're ours. Yeah. And, you know, I don't mind. I think primary care is a great setting to do a lot of this work, you know, with pain management, addiction, tapering, the sort of psychological dimensions of chronic pain. We really are well positioned to do that. But it is really complex and really difficult. And I think we could certainly use some help. That's hard because I feel like there is no fairy tale ending for some of these patients, unfortunately. I feel like they're on opioids. They're still in pain. They're at some degree, you know, questionably how much it improves their functionality. On the other end, you take them off the medicine, they're in pain still. Like they have kind of like a lose-lose in some regards. And I feel bad for them for that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think that is the bottom line. There isn't a great solution for a lot of people. People have problems, they suffer, they have pain, and the medical community doesn't actually have a lot to offer that helps them out. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter or Facebook at AddictionMedJC. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employer or those of the articles that we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.